a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm happy to welcome my friend Eric Peters back to the program. We have a weekly chat. Eric, don't take this wrong, but I always feel better after we have a chance to talk. It's almost like you're my freedom therapist. Well, you and me both. Uh, It helps me to air out these things as well. Uh, It helps me specifically to keep my wits about me and not go running off into the woods and hiding for the next couple of years. And I'm tempted to do that, too. But as you and I have talked about many times, really, this... This is the time to stand up, to be aware, to face the truth squarely, and and if necessary, you know, step up and and do the heavy lifting. Now, to that end, Absolutely. let's let's talk about uh, some of the things that w- that we're facing today. Um, this three hundred fifty million dollar judgment against Trump. Um, I mean, it's on the one hand, you know, the judge who who issued that uh, that particular judgment grins like the Joker. But it sounds like there are some unintended consequences that, that are starting to crop up uh, thanks to this latest legal development. Tell me about the truckers' reaction to, to that uh, civil suit settlement. Well, you know, this brings up the matter of us taking responsibility for things and deciding to do things. And these truckers individually have decided that collectively maybe they're going to stop delivering uh, their goods to New York City so as to convey a message to the people who are running that city. And that is an example of the power that we have that I think if we exercise it, can have tremendous effect. Clearly, you know, again, whatever you think of the orange man, what's being done to him is so grotesquely disproportionate, so over the top, so uh, so without even any real justification. As I, you know, as I understand the facts of this case, uh, in a business transaction, he applied for a loan, I think it was from Deutsche Bank, and he uh, overestimated his net worth or the value of his holdings or some such thing like that. And Deutsche Bank, as I understand it, actually testified and said, well, yeah, but we just based our loan on our own evaluation of what his ability to pay was and no harm was caused. And yet, as a result mm. of this, he's been hit with a $350 million judgment. And you know, it brings up what he said. And again, I, I find myself defending the orange man because it's not so much the orange man, but the principle of it that's at issue. He said something to the effect of, uh, you know, it's not me they're after, it's you, and I'm just standing in their way. And I think that's well said. If they can do this to him, you think they'll do it to you and me, particularly since we don't have the means that Trump has to defend ourselves against this sort of thing. No, very true. And isn't it interesting, this this Russian journalist who who died in custody uh, last week? Yeah. You know, there's there's this official outpouring. Oh, how terrible that the that Putin would, you know, would murder this man. I think I think Biden actually came right out and said Putin is responsible for this guy's death. And, and they make it out as if, oh, my goodness, you know, look at this country imprisoning people who speak out against the president. And yet we're supposed to not notice that uh, you guys are trying to imprison the, the leading candidate who's up against your guy. It, it just it seems well, really And what about bizarre. the people who are still languishing in prison over the so-called insurrection of January the 6th? Very true. No, very true. These are political prisoners, too. These people, you know, it's been remarked before, and it's almost become a banality, but that doesn't make it any less true, that these psychopaths will project what they do onto other people. No, I definitely see that. And, and like you, I, I don't want to sit here and stump 
for, for Donald Trump. But what the people who are trying to imprison him and, and impoverish him are doing is, is so over the top that there's no possible way that, that I could ever support them. Yeah, it used to be understood, or at least it used to be a commonplace. People would um, be taught as children that principles matter, and, 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 and specifically that uh, it's better that uh, one guilty man should go free than a thousand innocent people should be punished unjustly. And unfortunately, we've lost sight of that principle now. This is not about Trump. It's about justice. It's about uh, reasonableness and proportionality. And that's clearly all out the window. You know, this is without any question at all it is an attempt to railroad this man by any means necessary uh, by people who are overtly partisan and have overtly stated Let- Letitia, what's her name, the, 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 the prosecutor in New York who brought oh, the thing. yes. Uh, yeah. She actually campaigned and said, look, elect me and I'll get Trump. And that's somehow not a disqualification for being a prosecutor. I mean, it's chilling to think you can run for office and say, elect me and I'll get the people that we don't like. Yeah, and it's it's going to be an interesting day when she loses her law license for for that if kind of does. hubris. Yeah. I actually I think if there's a possibility. You know, I I have some dark thoughts on this and and what I mean by that is that you know, I think that there are still a lot of people and I'm among them and you probably are too who still have faith uh in uh in 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 in, in the integrity of a system that still respects things like that. And I don't know that that's the case any longer. You know, these people on the left have made it clear they don't care. They're willing to do anything at all, literally, to further their end goal of, of ultimate power that can't be questioned. And I don't know that whether we can remediate this any longer via the system that has been co-opted and corrupted by these people. Yep. We're, we're definitely approaching a fork in the road. And everybody who thinks, well, I'm just going to hold, you know, I'll, I'll wait and ride this out and then see what's what's the safe direction to go. You're going to have to make a choice, and it's not necessarily going to be an yep. easy one. But you got to make that choice. You you can't put it off indefinitely. Sure, and you know one of the choices that choices that may be made for us is they may just simply disqualify Trump from being on the ballot. Can you imagine that? Uh, and again, I'm not carrying water for Orange Man. I'm just saying that these these uh, advocates for our democracy who constantly tell us about how important our democracy is may very well decide on their very own say-so, that this man, you can't vote for him because we don't like him. He hasn't been convicted of anything, but nonetheless, we consider him a threat to democracy, and therefore you can't vote for him. I think Hillary Clinton actually just came back from an international conference of some kind on democracy, and, and that's what she was talking about is, you know, we've got to get the message out there, and we've got to make sure that misinformation isn't undermining our democracy. And, you know, it's... Yeah. It's sickening to see everybody the elites. knows it. You know, other than the most, other than the most uh, partisan people on the other side, it's become very cynical. It's kind of like uh, the situation that obtained in the old Soviet Union, where everybody understood the system was systematically corrupt, and you just played this stupid game. And that's what's happening now. People understand that we live in a thoroughly corrupted society in which all of the former institutions that people used to trust have become completely untrustworthy, and that breeds cynicism. And it breeds uh, apathy, resentment, and anger. And you know, none of those things are good things. No, I, I hear you. And the tough thing for me, Eric, is is finding the right balance between being aware of what's going on here and then focusing on uh, the, the things that I can do that, that don't require government permission or that don't otherwise require me to, to, to politically bend the knee. I agree with that wholeheartedly, and that's why I'm heartened by this nascent trucker protest, and I hope that it 
uh, I hope that it picks up traction and really starts to get going because it's an example of this decentralized opposition. You got individual people who drive trucks who just have decided on their own. You know, maybe maybe today I'm just going to stay home or call in sick, and I'm not going to drive my load into New York. Uh, and it's very much of a piece with the way a lot of us during the height of the, uh, the the event that was marketed as a pandemic, let's put it that way, refused to play along and, and wouldn't put on the ridiculous face diaper and wouldn't engage in sickness pantomime like standing six feet apart from other people and all of that. Individually, collectively, that becomes an important force. And that's, I think, how we can cure all of this. Yep. I uh, Well, I appreciate you keeping tabs on that and... You know, you and I, are, I'm sure, are going to have a lot to talk about as this election year unfolds. Uh, this is one of those times where the crazier it gets, the more I find myself wondering, will we even have an election? Yeah, I wonder about that also. Uh, you know, I, I kind of feel, feel that if the golden golem, as I can't remember, was a counselor who calls him that, the golden golem of greatness, <laughs> uh, if, if he manages to surmount all of these hurdles and there actually is an election, uh, or at least the prospect of one, um, they'll, they'll find some way to cancel the election. I'm convinced of it. Uh, you know, and it may be a war. They may actually trigger a war. They may trigger a financial collapse. I don't know what they're going to do. One thing I do think that, and I'm going to make a prediction here, I do think that uh, the days of Sleepy Joe are numbered at this point. I think you can read the tea leaves, the signals, and they're making it clear that it's time for Joe to leave. And then the question becomes, who comes in after Joe? And that is a big qu- I'm sorry, a big question, just because... Um, <laughs> as bad as Joe is, uh, the people standing in the wings in many ways are even worse. Yeah, far worse, because Joe, my assessment of him is that he's just a grifter. He's now a senile grifter, but that's all he's ever been over the course of his life. If you look at the positions he's taken, he's taken uh, the positions that he's been paid to take. I don't think he deeply believes in anything except his own grift and how to enhance his personal fortune and that of his family. Now, on the other hand, if you bring out somebody like Big Mike, by which I mean Michelle Obama or uh, Gavin Newsom or even Hillary Clinton, these people are ideologues. These people have a particular agenda that they want to pursue. And yeah, they want money, but ultimately what they want more than money is power. And that is the, the scary part. It's the power seekers that you really have to pay attention to. We've got to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. If you check my show notes today, that's for February 20th, 2024. You'll find a handy link to Eric's website. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, as we went to break in the last segment, we were talking a little bit about uh, the elections, such as they are and such as they may be. I have a question for you, though, and that is people get so wound up during especially a general election year. I step back and I find myself wondering, why is everybody so eager to have this person or that person rule over them? I guess, where does that mindset of I need to be ruled over and I better choose, you know, one of these two people to rule over me? Well, one of the facets is it's simply self-preservational and that, you know, we now have a system in which everything is on the table. You know, your rights are subject to a vote. Your life is subject to a vote. So therefore, essentially, you're simply voting to counteract the other vote, right? The guy down the road who uh, has a plan for you. 
So you're just trying to prevent his plan for you from becoming the plan for your life. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. But you're right. You know, more deeply, Americans used to be a much more self-led people. Now they have been trained for generations to be passive and to crave being led, which is, I agree, it's, it's, it's a, a creepy, even a repellent thing, this worship of some person, some guy or some woman or whoever who's going to be your leader. I mean, we saw that in black and white in Germany. I'm not interested in a leader. I'm interested in leading myself. Yeah, I think this is actually going to become one of the defining ideas as we move forward. And I say that just because government itself is in so much chaos, even down to the local level. I think the people who are going to weather the storm, so to speak, and the ones who are going to prosper and make it through on the other side of the storm are the ones who decide, I will rule myself and I will conduct myself as a free man or a free woman and then take the appropriate steps to do so. I agree. Uh, Self-led, you know, people who look at a given situation, evaluate the situation, and then make a determination for themselves what the appropriate course of action is. It's the, it's the opposite of this passivity of just sitting there. You know, kids are taught this, and it's appalling. They're taught to just sit there and wait to be told what to do by some authority figure. And that is, I think, one of the most poisonous doctrines that you can impart to kids. I'm not saying the kids should be anarchic and wild, but I do think they should be taught to exercise their judgment, use their God-given intelligence to look at a situation and figure out what the right thing to do is. And, you know, maybe they should ask other people for advice and opinions, but ultimately they should decide what the best course of action is. Hear, hear. I want to shift gears now and and talk about an article I saw that you had published recently about um, flat tires, a case of the flats and why. And look, most of us don't think about this until we go out and we see a flat or we get one while we're going down the road. But talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the, the things that we should be keeping in mind, you know, every single time we go to sit in our car and turn the key. Yeah, well, it's not really flat tires. It's more like leaking wheels and more, more precisely leaking aluminum wheels. Um, you know, over the course of roughly about the, t- the past 20 years, aluminum wheels have become standard. It used to be that most cars came with steel wheels. Uh, aluminum wheels are lighter, and so they reduce weight, and that helps the car makers get better mileage out of cars. And, of course, you can stamp or you can cast a, 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 an aluminum wheel into various patterns, and it looks pretty, but there's a downside. Uh, aluminum uh, tends to corrode, and oftentimes what happens, corrosion builds up on the bead surface. That's the part of the wheel that contacts the, 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 the part of the tire that prevents the air from leaking out. So what you end up have happening then is you go to one of these quickie tire shops typically, and they'll take off your old tires, and they'll put the new tires on, but they won't clean up that corrosion on the wheel. So then you have a not great seal, and then you have this aggravating slow leak. And, you know, you find yourself having to constantly go out there and not just check the, uh, the tire pressure, but put air in the tire. And this is something that's become very common, and it's something that a lot of people aren't aware is happening on account of the aluminum wheel thing. Interesting. Wow. Okay, that is something I really would not have considered other than, you know, oh, gee, my tire seems to be a little bit flatter or I'm noticing, you know, the TPS uh, thing is showing that uh, one tire is lower than the other. Tell me about uh, the danger of driving on underinflated tires. Well, the danger is that if it gets, if the pressure in a given tire uh, gets um, really low relative to the pressure in the other tires, the vehicle's handling and braking performance will deteriorate. And uh, you might have a vehicle that reacts in a very unsteady manner to a sudden input, such as uh, slamming on the brakes or jerking the steering wheel uh, in order to avoid an accident, and then you have a wreck. But 
the more subtle problem is that if you're driving around on the tire and it's you know eight, nine, ten pounds low, that's probably not going to cause you to have a wreck. But what it will do is cause the tire to wear fast and wear out faster and potentially be damaged. And then uh, you know you take it into the shop and, and say, hey, look, you know this tire is damaged. Uh, I have a tire warranty here, and they'll look at you and say, well. You drove around with uh, with with the tire underinflated, so the warranty coverage is void. Dang, <laughs> that sounds like a painful lesson. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, there's a facet to this too. You know, people have been taught now not to check their tire pressure, and I mean manually with a stick, because most new cars, cars built over the last twenty or so years, all have these these tire pressure monitoring systems. And, you know, so they wait to see if that little light comes on in the dash that tells them to check their, their tire pressure. The problem is that those systems are notoriously inaccurate, and people get used to ignoring them for that reason. They'll see the light come on. They'll check their tire pressure. Oh, the tire pressure is fine. So they ignore the light. And, you know, it's circular, right? You know, this, this, this system that's supposed to prevent the problem of people driving around on underinflated tires has actually, in some re- re- very real way, uh, cause people to drive around on underinflated tires even more than they used to. Well, at least that's not a problem you would ever have with an electric vehicle, right? Don't they have a pump built oh, yeah, in? Well, then you got you, you have actually another problem. You know, these electric vehicles are so heavy uh, that tires wear out about a third faster than they would otherwise. Yeah, that I could see that being a big problem. So, so talk to me about this. Um, you had mentioned on uh, on your your website about how if if EVs really are all that, how come we have to be bribed in order to yeah, buy them? Well, it, doesn't the question kind of answer itself? I mean, can you think of any other product that you have to pay people to buy that isn't a failed product? You know, I mean, if something is desirable, uh, people will tend to say, "Yeah, I'd like to have that," and they'll buy it. You know, if you have to bribe people to buy something. It means you're trying to get rid of it because people really don't want it. And you're just trying to clear out the inventory. The, you know, the infamous Kmart blue light special comes to mind. Uh, or vehicles that don't sell. You know, even this predates the EV phenomenon. You see discounted vehicles that were just being fire sold to get them off the lot. Uh, and the, the dealerships weren't making any money, but they just needed to get rid of them. You know, and it's just, to me, such a self-evident thing. If these EVs are so great, people will be lining up to pay good money for them. In fact, you have to pay people to to put down some money for them. Yeah, I think uh, they they should have just taken the the vaccine approach and said, "Look, we'll give you a donut if you buy an EV." <laughs> and it, that's just, you know that's very apt because that's exactly what it is, just on a grander scale. It's like here we're dangle this little goodie in front of you uh, in order to get you to uh, to go along with something that probably otherwise that little voice in your head would say, "Nah, that's not for me." I just can't help but remember Bill De Blasio sitting there eating a hamburger and french fries. And I mean, just, oh, this is yep. so good. And thinking, my gosh, you know, he's he's trying to get people to sell their souls for a hamburger. Yeah, yep. well, this is in some ways even, yeah, this is not quite that bad. But it's still pretty bad in that what's happening as a practical matter is that working class and middle class people who pay taxes are the ones who are effectively being made to subsidize these high-dollar electric vehicles that, for the, you know, for, for the obvious reason, because they are so high-dollar, only affluent people can afford to buy them. I mean, I can't afford to buy a $50,000 car, you know, even with a $7,500 uh, bribe uh, tossed in my lap. Um, but if you're a rich government worker or some other person in that, that, that league, sure, why not? And, and the person who's helping you to pay for that is probably your plumber or some guy who actually has to work for a living. 
amazing stuff. Well, Eric, I appreciate uh, your time this week. As always, I feel just a little bit more sane and a little more ready to uh, move forward through the rest of the week after our conversation. Me too. Me too. I just need another cup of coffee now and I'll be fine. All right. Fair enough. Well, I look forward to talking with you next week. Uh, one only can wonder at what uh, what new and exciting current events <laughs> we'll have to discuss. Yeah, but maybe we'll just have to see each other in the concentration camp. I'll we'll have to fight over who gets the top bunk. Yep. Well, hey, I've I've long maintained, you know, my closest friends are the ones whose names are next to me on that watch list, right? Right. <laughs> Eric, you know, absolutely. Ha- have a great week. We'll talk again Tuesday. You too, Brian. Thank you. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, and a quick thank you to my sponsors, including Ironsight Brewing Company. I just want to mention them specifically, along with the other sponsors you will find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Ironsight Brewing Company is a subscription coffee company, and if coffee is what kicks you into gear in the morning, you should really consider uh, subscribing. From the roaster to your cup in less than 72 hours, I've got a link in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Let's talk for a moment about all the things we take for granted. And there's a lot. Okay, I complain. I complain a lot too. But, you know, all things considered, the wonder of the free world to meet our needs is actually one of the biggest wonders around us. And I've got a great article here from Art Carden from the American Institute for Economic Research. It's titled, Coats, Pencils, and Division of Knowledge. And this is a great example of all the things that are available to us that we just take for granted and, you know, sometimes complain, oh, I had to put my credit card number into my phone. What kind of, you know, what kind of a primitive thing is that? Anyway, here's what Art Carden had to say. He says, early in the Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith brought up a woolen coat of the kind the average workman of 18th century Scotland might find familiar. The coat was, Smith argued, a wonder of cooperation and an example of the, of the division of labor and the division of knowledge. Now, the day laborer's woolen coat is the product of innumerable hands and minds. Art says a coat like the one I've worn for almost 20 years can be bought for about $130 online or a little over four hours work at average American wages. He says it's easy to take for granted, but something so simple we take for granted and we don't even think about is something no single mind can comprehend. It is a product, as the Scottish philosopher Adam Ferguson said, of human action, but not of human design. G.K. Chesterton, as quoted by Leonard Reed, said, We are perishing for want of wonder, not for want of wonders. Alfred North Whitehead said, Civilization advances by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking of them. And Thomas Sowell has explained how we can survive with a much narrower knowledge base than our ancestors. They had to know how to skin and kill animals, and they had to know which plants they could eat. When I want food and clothing, I just need to know how to get to the store. He says, when you buy a coat, you perform innumerable important operations without thinking of them. You buy a coat because you want to stay warm and look nice. So what are among the innumerable operations you perform without thinking of them? Well, Art Carden says, 
I doubt you have more than a superficial knowledge of the care and feeding of sheep, the sorting, grading, and labeling of different kinds of wool, nor do you know much about how the price of wool changes, has changed, or might change. How much do you know about carding and spinning wool? How about the supply chain that gets wool from the farm to the factory? About transoceanic shipping? He's got a point. In the 21st century, what do you know about the software that makes Amazon.com run, that processes your payments swiftly, securely, reliably? Art Carden says, wonder is not too strong a word to describe a social process that allows us to get so much bread and so much clothing for so little sweat of our brows. It's not a miracle in the strictest sense, though it might seem like it. The code is the product of a systemic process appropriate to the kind of world God created. We divide labor. We divide knowledge. The results are products we could not design from start to finish. And even if we could, we wouldn't be able to tell without prices which ones create value. So Art says, let's consider the pencil discussed by Leonard Reed in his classic essay, I Pencil. By the way, he does have a link to that essay if you haven't read it. It is one of the most eye-opening essays you're ever going to read. And he asks that we consider this essay in light of The Economist Roger Garrison's description of the structure of production. Now, Art Carden says a lot has to happen between raw and wild earth and a device we can use to record and transmit coded knowledge. First, raw materials have to be mined. Graphite has to be mined. Trees have to be felled. The oil that turns into the diesel fuel that powers the trucks carrying the pencils across the country has to be extracted. The metal that goes into the ferrule has to be mined. The raw earth of dirt and water is transformed into something at least a little more useful. Unrefined ore, trees that have been cut down, oil that's been extracted from the ground, cotton that has been picked, and wool that has been sheared and collected. Now the next stage of production is refining. This is where people take the iron ore, cut trees, crude oil, and other stuff they've pulled from the ground, and then turn them into industrial materials like Lumber, steel, bronze, kerosene, diesel fuel, asphalt, gasoline, and other commodities. Refining gets raw materials ready for the next stage of production, which is manufacturing. Manufacturing is applying effort and intelligence to turn refined commodities like cotton and wool that's been sorted and graded, steel, fuel, and lumber into goods like pencils, pens, cars, and computers. And after they're manufactured, goods enter into the distributing and retailing stages of production. Distributing gets goods from factories to warehouses to store shelves, while retailing gets goods from store shelves into the hands of end consumers. In each stage, people exert effort and apply intelligence to create value. Refiners take raw materials and turn them into commodities that are a little more useful. Manufacturers turn those commodities into goods that are in turn a little more useful. Distributors and retailers may not manufacture anything, but they create value by getting goods like pencils, computers, and cars closer to where end users can use them. Now, these are important and often overlooked ways people can create value. Transforming one pile of materials into another can create value, but so can changing where and when a good can be found. A pencil in a warehouse differs from a pencil in your desk drawer. It's prohibitively costly for you to get and use the pencil in the warehouse. It's trivially easy to get and use the pencil in your desk drawer. So Art Carden says the structure of production shows why land and labor have value. In fact, he says it's a mistake, albeit a common one, to think that goods have value because of all the resources that went into them. That gets things extremely backward, 
However, production moves forward through successive stages from raw materials to finished goods. Valuation moves backwards through successive stages of production from finished goods to raw materials. Land and labor get their value from the finished goods and services they produce. So a stand of cedar trees, therefore, is valuable because it can be used to produce pencils, closets, shoe trees, furniture, and other goods. But those goods don't get their value because they're created from cedar. That makes sense, actually. Now, Art Garden says, look, we can describe and define a similar process for every good. A tractor, iron ore, has to be mined and then refined into the steel used to manufacture a tractor. The tractor has to be distributed to a tractor dealership where a farmer buys it. A waffle, well, the farmer has to mine grain, a miller has to refine it into flour, then waffle batter has to be manufactured, distributed to waffle houses around the country, then turned into waffles that become someone's breakfast. And he says the prices you pay for all the resources that go into your morning waffle emerge from the competing bids and asks from people around the world who might have different ideas about what could be done with iron ore, steel tractors, wheat, flour, and so on. And they're willing to pay these prices because they expect, ultimately, consumers to reward them by giving them money in exchange for whatever they're making. So there you have it. That's a real neat and quick economics lesson, courtesy of Art Carden, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, where he's a senior fellow. So here's, here's just kind of a weird quest that I'm going to ask you to join me on just for today. You don't even have to do it all day, but... Try to find the situational awareness to really notice what you are using rather, and what you are doing and all the different ways that division of labor and division of knowledge contributed to you being able to do it. By the way, I tried this, and it can become a little bit overwhelming, even if you're just going to gas up your car. It's amazing. Well, where did that oil come from? Who found it? You know, who drilled the well for it? Who pumped it, uh, you know, out of the ground and into into trucks or rail cars so it could be taken and refined? And, and uh, where you know, who designed the refinery? Who figured out the proper chemical formula? You know, how long does this have to be heated at this temperature and in this, you know, cracking tower in order to separate these molecules from these molecules? Yeah, it gets complicated fast, and that's to say nothing of it, who built the roads that you drove onto the gas station, who built the gas pumps. I mean, even down to the clerk who's running the cash register inside. Lots of different people contributing along the way just so you can put a little fuel in your car. Now, again, it's easy to see how we could take this all for granted, right? The only time we really notice is when something isn't right. What do you mean this gas pump's out of order? Oh, the stuff I put up with. <laughs> No, don't worry. I do it too. Everything could be going just as great as could be in one little thing. I stepped on a thumbtack. This world is cruel and horrible to me. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll spare you the drama. But I will encourage you, take a look at a second look at this article by Art Carden, and uh, you'll find a link in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I would su- suggest if you haven't already subscribed to my show notes, maybe consider doing it. At the very least, you're going to get uh, Monday through Friday a nice daily dose of some good recommended reading. And who knows? Maybe you'll learn some interesting things along the way. I know I do, and I'm just the guy preparing and delivering the show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Two articles that I would like to point to, to your attention or point out to your attention or direct your attention to. Wow. Is it Monday? Because it's I'm getting a Monday vibe here. Anyway, let's start with the article of the day. This one is courtesy of the Brownstone Institute. Excellent article on how experts, that's in quotation marks, continue to spread misinformation. This is from Ian Miller, and it's it's a pretty simple read, but I'm just going to give you the first little bit of this just to illustrate what he's talking about, and, and hopefully the light comes on for you like it did for me. Ian Miller says, in a stunning turn of events, the CDC may be planning to update its guidance to the year 2021 in February of 2024. Not about masks, which unequivocally do not work to spread the, to prevent rather the spread of the coronavirus or any other respiratory virus for that matter. They, of course, won't be acknowledging their many mistakes on COVID vaccines or school closures or lockdowns. No, Instead, their proposed changes center around a very basic guidance on isolation due to a COVID infection. Now, Ian Miller says, look, you'd think that a very mild alteration to a policy so small would be widely celebrated, considering most members of the public have long since abandoned isolation guidelines anyway. But that assumption rests on a misguided understanding of how committed COVID extremists are to pushing endless panic. And some of those extremists happen to work at the New York Times. So according to the Times, the CDC's changes would simply put COVID in line with guidance for flu or RSV infections. Here's a quote. Under the proposed guidelines, Americans would no longer be advised to isolate for five days before returning to work or school. Instead, they might return to their routines if they have been fever-free for at least 24 hours without medication. The same standard applied to the influenza and respiratory syncytial viruses. The article states, well, that sounds reasonable enough, right? Especially considering how few people are still paying attention to isolation rules anyway. But he says not for the COVID extremists, no. And from here, Ian goes into how the COVID obsession continues to cause harm and how it ignores reality. And the mask obsession never ends. Pretty crazy stuff. By the way, do you know the New York Times... The actually was was stating earlier that uh, there were 1,500 people dying of COVID per day. That's in 2024. This is a neat uh, little correction here. A correction was made on February 13, 2024. An earlier version of this article misstated the number of COVID deaths earlier this winter. It was, <coughs> excuse me, 1,500 per week, not per day. I don't know about you, but... Uh, I really feel bad for the people whose minds have been broken by this. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory, oh, these broke-minded people, you know, who are so stupid and susceptible that they actually, you know, gave in. The panic that was being pushed at us, I think, was unprecedented. If there's been anything like it before, you know, I'm, I just, I don't know. On such a large scale and with such unity by all the different government players. But they scared people to death. And now the people who are obsessed, the people who are always talking, oh, the long COVID, I've got long COVID and it's terrible and you're not wearing a mask. People are still afraid to, to go out in public. 
And again, this is not to deny that, yeah, for some people, COVID can be pretty rough. For most people, however, that's not the case. But we were sure, all of us were sure, you know, told that, oh, this is the most scary, terrible, horrifying thing. And of course, if you tested positive for COVID, well, you better lock yourself down and don't go near anybody. Kind of an interesting shift in how the CDC is approaching that. Very quietly, too. Maybe you noticed that. That's always curious. Anyway, it's an excellent article. That is the article of the day, again, from the excellent Brownstone Institute, which I, I strongly commend them on their commitment to shining the light on what was being done to us in the name of saving us from COVID. Great stuff. All right, one final article. This is a great one from Walker Larson. Pick this one up off intellectualtakeout.org. Returning to first things to save civilization. I know, that seems pretty lofty, right? You and I, you were going to go team up, we're going to save civilization. But I want you to hear what Walker Larson has to say. He is, uh, he's got a good point here. Because if we're trying to save civilization, that can seem overwhelming, especially when most of civilization seems determined, you know, to fly this thing straight into the ground. So how do we do it? Here's how Walker Larson puts it. He says, in this most rare and radiant of Wisconsin Februarys with record high temperatures and ample sunshine, my wife has been tapping trees and making maple syrup. Now he says, I applaud her efforts and I gratefully ingest the fruit of her labors. The sap has been running steadily, recklessly almost, overflowing the pails she uses, turning their sides sleek with sweetness. Meanwhile, the nations pursue their course of burning to the ground, war in, the Ukra- in Ukraine and in the, in the Middle East, with threats of it broadening like a blood stain on the robe of the earth. Another contentious election looms in the United States. Shudders of economic instability echo faintly, eerily, while an anti-family, anti-morality, anti-tradition, anti-civilization, cultural war of disintegration continues apace. Forces like the World Economic Forum lay brick upon brick of their technocratic, totalitarian nightmare. But, here's the good part. There are still trees. Trees that, by some unexpected miracle, draw nutrients from the earth and turn them into clear, crystalline, sweet nectar, pulsing like lifeblood under the, under the bark. Now, Walker Larson says in his wife's process of boiling down the sap into syrup, she has a few times brought him a glass of liquid clear as diamond. And he says, I've heartily drunk that raw sap, savoring the wood and bark and moss and earth distilled and sweetened, redolent of sun and wind and the quiet slumber of deep soil awaiting spring. And he says, I've thought, I'm drinking a tree. He says, when I drink sap from my own backyard, I am drinking that endless freshness. He's talking about the freshness of nature. He says, I can feel it. So suppose that the answers to many of our problems as a culture lie right under our noses, unobtrusive, out of the way, common miracles so oft forgotten. Suppose that what we need is to slow down, shut off the media pipeline of overstimulating information, and pay attention to the little things. The primary realities, things like trees and sap and the lilt of a song and a warm hearth with warmer hearts around it. As the wise John Sr. wrote, no serious restitution of society can occur without a return to first principles. Yes, but before principles, we must return to the ordinary reality which feeds first principles. End quote. Now, Walker Larson says, look, 
to be clear, I'm not advocating some kind of political quietism. The political and cultural battles must go on, and we can't give up the fight, but one needs some kind of reserve of hope and energy to draw on in order to keep up the fight and those reserves. He says, I believe, lie, those reserves, he says that, uh, I, I believe in a, in a, lie in a love of the common things. That's what we're defending, after all. Moreover, he says, if you really want to change a nation or the world, you first have to change hearts. And as philosophy professor John Cutterback says, people are not changed by hearing a message, or at least not just by that. What people are changed by is an experience, an experience of what authentic human life really is. I don't know why, but that one rang especially true to me. He says an authentic human life is built on little, humble things. A baby pressed against his mother's breast, a cow lowing in the upper pasture, a trout sipping at the surface of a glittering stream, a community of neighbors coming together to celebrate. These simple things will endure. They are eternal. Empires rise and fall, but rivers run on, and apples glint amid autumn leaves, and a father rocks his child to sleep, and some brave voice begins to sing in the fields. These things will endure. But some may object, we face world-ending forces, nuclear apocalypse, and what have you. Now, he says, that may be. I can't say. Only God knows. But even if some catastrophe lies ahead, he says, I believe that it will be the humble things, the overlooked ordinary realities of human life that will matter in the end. And it will be a return to them, a new cherishing of them, that might hold us back from the precipice to begin with. It was forgetting them that got us here in the first place. Now, there's more to this article. I'm going to encourage you, explore it for yourself. But I do agree with him that uh, we, we've got to be able to return to the humble and good things. The best way I know to clarify that kind of focus in our lives is to be humble, good people. And that means in some sense, we're looking for ways that we can actively serve people around us. Look, I don't know what's, what's going to happen either. I like to take a wild guess at it. Sometimes I get close, sometimes I don't. But whatever it is, it doesn't change the fact that being a truly great person has measurable impact on the world, wherever you happen to be standing. So with that in mind, let's uh, let's chuck the fear for a little bit, focus on what we can control, and becoming a better person is definitely one of those things. This is The Brian Hyde Show.